The scripture reading this morning will come from Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. Mark 15, 42 through 47. It can be found on page 901 of your pew Bibles. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb, which he had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother Joseph observed where he was laid. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us this morning, thank you so much for being here. Again, we welcome you. It is always an encouragement to us to have visitors, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We hope that you'll come back time and time again. If there's any way that we can help you or serve you, let us know. We would love to have the opportunity to do that. We look forward to getting to know you. In the 1973 August edition of Spider-Man... We see Peter Parker standing over Gwendolyn Stacy's grave, and he says, She died young, and her death was a senseless one, if any death can be said to have meaning. That has plagued man from the very beginning. The meaning of life, and is there any meaning in death? Job asked the question thousands of years ago, If a man dies, shall he live again? How many times have we been to funerals and then we go to the graveside? And as a minister, I've noticed that when we go to the closing of the grave, that oftentimes that seems to be one of the hardest times on the family. Because oftentimes they've walked with an individual that's been sick for several months and maybe sometimes years. They've walked with that family throughout their sickness and then finally to their final days of death. They've done everything they could do to honor that family with a funeral service. But then finally the finality of it comes whenever they stand there at the grave and they realize there's no further that they can go with that body, that it must rest there. Friends, as we think about the great resurrection of Jesus tonight, we this morning will think about the death of Jesus Because if we don't realize what was in the grave with Jesus, we can never fully appreciate the fact of the resurrection. I'd like for you to notice in the text that was capably read there in Mark the 15th chapter a few things and then especially notice that final phrase there in verse 46. Did you notice that it was evening and... Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy councilman, a prominent councilman. And he wanted to offer Jesus an honorable burial. Now it says that he took courage in order to ask Pilate for the body. That stands out significant to me. What was it that was so courageous? Do you remember Jesus' closest apostles all forsook him at the time of the crucifixion? 
It seemed that very few people wanted to identify themselves with Jesus over the last few hours in the last few days. It's amazing that Joseph was bold enough to identify himself as being one of Jesus' followers. After all, they just killed Jesus. Would they not begin to persecute his followers also? It also was a courageous act because being a Jew, touching a deceased body would make him defiled, at least to celebrate the Passover. He wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover as a clean individual, as all of the other Jews would be able to do on that day. But notice... He took Jesus and he wrapped him in fine linen and he placed him in a tomb that was hewn out of stone. And notice and let it picture be painted in your mind the last phrase in verse 46. And rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. The closing of the grave. The next verse tells us about the women that stood there and watched. How hard it must have been for those that loved Jesus to stand and see the closing of the grave. I'd like for us to see one more paragraph about this as we go to Matthew, the 27th chapter. In Matthew, the 27th chapter, we see that not only the Jews, and I'm reminding you of the fact that the Jews were responsible for Jesus being crucified... The scribes and the Pharisees, that is. They were jealous of Jesus. He'd been competition to them. And they wanted to have him out of the picture. But then something came to their mind. Wait a minute. This one that we're trying to take out of the picture, he did speak of the fact that he might resurrect in three days. Now what if some of his followers come by and steal his body? Now we've got to compete with the fact that for for ages folks are going to be saying, you know Jesus is alive because his body is no longer in the tomb. So the The Jews decide to take care of that. Let's begin reading at 62, and especially we want to note the end of 66. But let's get this story here in 62 and following. We're in Matthew, the 27th chapter. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive. You see, they're remembering while Jesus was still alive. How that deceiver said, isn't that sad? That's a description of Satan, the deceiver. He's the father of lies. And here the priest and the, the Pharisees are giving Jesus the name of Satan. That deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure. Until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now you know the lengths that they went to to crucify Jesus. You can imagine now if they've decided in their mind, we're going to make this tomb as secure as possible. Now on this slide, we see several pictures. Some are actual pictures of ancient graves and others are artists rendering. But if you'll notice that some of the tombs in that day and time actually had a stone disc that was carved out. Now remember, Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb for Jesus to use and he was a wealthy man and it says it was hewn out of rock, which leads us to believe that then in a sense he had a customized tomb. In other words, he didn't have a tomb that was just a, a, a cave 
that was a natural cave back into the ground and he just rolled some huge boulder in front of it, as might have been the case with many tombs of that day, and it could have been the case of Jesus' tomb. But it seems that because here it says that they used a wealthy man's tomb, and a tomb that was hewn out of stone, it makes us believe that he might have had a more sophisticated burial. It might have been, as you see there in the pictures, that there was a track that literally that disc would roll to one side of the door, and then it could be rolled back in front of the door. Remember what the women said when they were going to go back Sunday morning to anoint the body of Jesus? They were wondering how they would roll that large stone away. You see, they would have entrance over and over into this stone as they would continue to do honorable acts to the body as it would decay. Now, do you see what the Jews wanted? We don't want anyone going in and out of that tomb. Pilate says, I'll give you permission. I'll send a guard, but I tell you what, you guys are the ones that want it sealed. I'm going to leave it up to you to seal it. Can you imagine how they must have worked to seal that stone to the face of that tomb? Now, I don't know if they had some kind of mortar or concrete that they would have mixed up. I don't know if they would have wedged larger larger stones to the side of it or in front of it. I don't know exactly how they did it, but I have no doubt in my mind they did the very best job that they could do to secure the tomb by sealing the stone. What was behind that stone? We've been studying a series of living a rock-solid life in our faith. Having a rock-solid faith. Friends, if we don't know what was behind that rock, we don't really know who we are as Christians. If we don't know what was at stake when Jesus died, we can't fully appreciate the resurrection. Friends, what I have to understand is that there, were, there was a lot more happening in that occasion than just a man dying. Now we could study almost an endless series of things that was behind that stone. But this morning, let's consider three things that would have been lying with Jesus behind that stone. Look with me, if you will, to John, the 14th chapter. In John, the 14th chapter, we see one thing that was lying behind that stone with Jesus was a dead conception of God. You see, while Jesus was alive, He helped mankind see and understand the Father better than mankind had ever seen or understood the Father. As a matter of fact, toward the end of John, the 13th chapter, Jesus was with His closest and they were having a nighttime conversation. And He was trying to prepare them for the fact that He wouldn't always be on earth. And so He told them that He was going to go. And almost like a child, Peter says, I want to go with you. And he says, where I'm going, you can't go. He says, I laid down my life to go. He says, no, you deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And you can imagine how it must have broken Peter's heart. You can imagine how it must have stunned all the other ones. Because it's in this setting that Jesus responds by saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house for many mansions. And he talks about the heaven that he goes to prepare. And he talks about the fact that he wants them to go and be in heaven with him when he comes back again. And Thomas asks a question and says, Lord, if we don't know where you are, how are we going to know the way? And Jesus gives that beautiful answer in the 14th chapter and verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I can imagine at this point, Philip was probably going to ask in his mind, he was going to ask probably a very wonderful 
an intelligent question. You know, last time you were sitting in class, for some of you it wasn't that long ago, but you remember the last time you were sitting in class and maybe you thought to yourself, ooh, I've got a question I want to ask and this is really an intelligent question. This, this is going to impress everybody. I'm not suggesting to you that's exactly what Philip had in mind. But you know, a lot of people would probably say, ooh, Philip, that's so good. That's really something to think about. Notice what Philip asked in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. What faith? Lord, the only thing we need in our life is for you to show us the Father. Lord, we won't ask anything else out of you. We won't need anything else in our life. Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, everything will be all right. Wow, Jesus is surely going to say, Philip, that a boy. You are to be commended on such faith and such a wonderful question. No. He doesn't do that at all. And friends, you and I this morning can be guilty of the very same thing that Philip was guilty of. He missed seeing what was right before his eyes. Look how Jesus answers. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You understand his explanation? Philip, how can you say that? You've been walking with me. You've listened to the words I've preached. You saw the miracles that i performed. You know that my words, the authority is because they're of the Father. The miracles I perform, the power in them is because I'm of the Father. Do you realize me and the Father are one? How can you say, show me the Father? Now, just to consider a universal application. Us and Jesus and the Father can't be one in the same sense that Christ and the Father are one. But we can know this, that just as Jesus had said, if you just listened to my words and if you just looked at my actions, you'd know who the Father is. I want to ask you, could we go to the people you spent last week with? Can we go to the people that you spent this weekend with? And can we ask them, who is their God? Would they know by the words you selected and by the actions that you lived? That the Almighty is your Father? You see, Jesus said, I shouldn't have to tell you more about the Father. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look back just a page or two in in John the 12th chapter. I'd like for us to just see another very similar occasion of this. And in John the 12th chapter, this is just after the entry into Jerusalem before the crucifixion. And notice what Jesus says in 44 and 45. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Jesus says, you believe in me, you believe in God. You've seen me, you've seen God the Father. You hear the words of me, you hear the words of the Father. And when we look at this also from Colossians... Notice how Paul said it in Colossians 1 and 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There's an invisible Father that you and I have not seen. But yet if we see Jesus, 
We see that, Father. It's kind of like in John, the first chapter, where in verse 1, we have Jesus revealed to us as the Word. But then in verse 14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have never, as mankind, as the human race, we have never been so close to God as to when we had Jesus on this earth. We've never seen how God would interact in the lives of people. We've never seen how God would love His friends and His enemies. We've never seen how God would deal in the words that He would say and the actions they would do and the power that He could proclaim in the same way that we saw it once Jesus was on this earth. Can you imagine how many people begin to look at Jesus and say, I'm starting to see God more clearly. And then it happened. He was crucified. Wait a minute. Not only is Jesus behind that stone, my conception of God is dead. God died. Is there any power in a God that's dead? Is there any hope in a God who is dead? If Jesus was God in the flesh and He remained sealed behind a stone, there's some real issues to our faith. If that stone remains sealed with Jesus remaining dead. But not only that, if you would be looking with me to John the 8th chapter and we see an ideal of humanity. In John the 8th chapter, we have the story that is intriguing. It's the story of the adulterous woman. And you remember that she is accused of adultery. We really don't know for sure if she's guilty or innocent, but she's accused of adultery. And they gather around and they want to trap Jesus. And in their entrapment, Jesus in His great wisdom tells the one that is innocent to cast the first stone. They begin to leave and to walk away. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more in verse 11. And notice the picture that he paints for all of those that would gather around and accuse. And notice the picture he paints for the adulterous woman. Notice the picture he paints for you and I that are here this morning. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Friends, we are a society right now that are struggling to find purpose in life. One of the best-selling books ever printed was printed recently about the purpose-driven life. We are hungry to know why are we on this earth and what should I do while I'm here? Is there anything that my life can contribute to the afterlife? And Jesus gives the answer to the most simple definition of our purpose in life. And He says, you've been walking in darkness? Hey, adulterous lady, you've been walking in darkness? Hey, those of you that hate your brothers and sisters and you throw rocks at mankind, are you walking in darkness? Let me give you an answer. I'm the light, Jesus says. Notice these two words. Follow me. That's our purpose for living. Follow me. Jesus went to some of the people that were hurting the most in life and He helped turn their life around by saying, follow me. When individuals follow Jesus, they find their purpose for living. They find a better life to live. They find hope for eternity. 
Life is completely different when we say, follow Jesus, because Jesus is the light. You walk around in darkness. I'm not talking about when your house is dark and you can kind of see things. I'm talking about when it's the black cave type of darkness where it's so dark it's thick, you can feel it. You literally can't see anything before your eyes. I've been told in situations like that, people don't move much. They're afraid to step because they can't see anything. That kind of darkness paralyzes you and I from finding our purpose in life. That kind of darkness paralyzes us from finding a God, from finding the peace of God, from finding a reason to live, from finding a purpose for life. That kind of darkness paralyzes us from finding hope for eternity. That kind of life paralyzes us from being a blessing to the lives of others. But Jesus said, I can shed light on the matter. Follow me and I can give you light. Friends, have you thought about how many people had changed their life and they'd followed Jesus? You remember one of the women that stayed with Jesus, even going down to the tomb early that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene? You remember that demons had been cast out of her and she had turned her life around and been a follower of Jesus? And throughout the Scriptures, we see others that had turned their life around. Their life wasn't anything similar to what it had been. Their life was blessed. But now we have a problem. They have sealed the stone. The one that said, follow me, is dead. How can I follow a deceased with power? So it is, if Jesus remains in that grave, friends, not only is our conception of God dead, but our idea of humanity, we're lost. We don't really know what to follow anymore. But then notice, if you will, as we go to Luke, the 19th chapter. In Luke, the 19th chapter, we see a beautiful story as Jesus was passionate about redeeming mankind. You remember the story of Zacchaeus? You remember that man that was a tax collector and because of that he would have been hated by the Jews because he would have collected their money and usually more than what they actually owed and so he was stealing from his own brethren and then he also was working for the Roman Empire and so there would have been a lot of reasons that people would have hated him but he wanted to learn something of Jesus friends I need to understand that a lot of the time when I'm doing things in life that creates reasons for people to hate me That gnawing inside that says, I still want to learn about Jesus can be genuine. When we're in the midst of sin and we know that we ought not be living this life, that pain in the heart that says, I could live a different life, it's real. Friends, what we see through the scriptures is that sinners can be found by Jesus. There's not a person here that Jesus can't reach out to. As a matter of fact, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he was a shorter man, so he climbed in a tree so he could look over the crowd. And Jesus comes to him, invites himself into his house. Zacchaeus that day decided to be a follower of Jesus. And notice the way Jesus would describe this in verse 9 and 10. Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
We talked in the previous point what our purpose of living is, is to follow Jesus. Jesus, what's your purpose of living? He says, my purpose is I've come to seek and save the lost. Another place he'd say, my purpose is to do the will of Him that sent me. What is the will of Him that sent me? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God, what's the purpose for your Son? The purpose of my son is to save the world. Jesus, you're on this earth. What's your purpose? Zacchaeus, let me tell you what my purpose is. I've come to save you and everybody else that's willing to be saved. Friends, that's the passion that Jesus had to redeem us. He believed in it enough that he came to this earth. He believed in it enough that He lived a faithful life so that He could be a faithful sacrifice for us. He believed in it enough that He died on a cross for our sins. But that leads us to that stone. The closing of the grave that was sealed. And if He remains there, we don't have a Redeemer. Dead men don't redeem. No wonder the resurrection is a beautiful occasion. Because our concept of God would be all different without a resurrection. Our idea of humanity would be all different without a resurrection. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. I'd like to take your eyes back as we close this lesson to the text. Mark the 15th chapter. In the translations we're reading out of, this isn't going to stand out. You remember the man, Joseph, that had courage to go back and ask for the body of Jesus? If you'll notice back in verse 43, it literally says he asked for the body of Jesus. That's translated the way we would use it. But you remember, Pilate didn't know if Jesus had died yet. So he asked the centurion. The centurion confirmed the fact that Jesus had died. And you see in 45, I want to read it in what would be a little bit more accurate translation. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the corpse to Joseph. It may not be a big deal, but Mark chose to use two different words there. Why? If you love Jesus, if you wanted to honor Him, Maybe if you had hope in a resurrection, you'd say, Pilate, could I have his body? It means a lot to me. I'd like to give him an honorable burial. Pilate, can I have his body? Is he even dead yet? Centurion, see if he's dead. He's dead. Give the man his corpse. You know what the word corpse literally means? It literally means ruins. 
Give him the ruins of that man called Jesus. Anything of value is gone now. Give him the ruins. Jesus still lives. And so many today treat Jesus as if if he's ruins. Not much worth. Not much value. This morning, how do you treat Jesus? Do you honor Him as the Son of God? Or do you neglect Him like an old pair of worn-out shoes? They had good at one time, but it's over. This morning, I hope we'll all give careful consideration to life because there's meaning in life. And I hope we'll realize that when we die as a Christian, there's meaning in death because it's a passage to that great resurrection where we'll hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, and deliver us to live before God for an eternity. If you're not a child of God, wouldn't this morning be a wonderful time to do that? If you're a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, won't you repent of sins, make changes in your life, turn from the world and turn to God? And not be ashamed, but confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized. Now notice in baptism we go into a burial. And then we come out, which is a spiritual resurrection, because now we're alive spiritually to live a new life. If you haven't been baptized this morning, we'd urge you to give your life to the Lord. Maybe you have been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've lost the way. Friends, you remember in the beginning this morning we talked about the closing of the grave? Unless Jesus comes again, every one of us will attend at least one closing of the grave of some kind. And it'll be our own. How wise we are when we live for that moment. Because when we live in preparation for death, we've found the purpose of living. Why? Because He's alive. He's risen. The greatest meaning in life has to do with life after this life. If we can help you anyway.